But I, I want to talk to you about this book, The Insanity of Obedience, uh, by Nick Ripkin. Subtitle there, you can see, Walking with Jesus in Tough Places. This is a book about missions. It's appropriate for me to, to bring this book out in light of just Hannah coming off the mission field for the past five months or so. It's a book about uh, our call of obedience to go, um, missions to where there is a great need, and, and there is a great need. Uh, but the book also, that, that's, that's not all of it. A lot of it has to do with the insanity of the obedience of the people in the foreign nations who are trusting in Christ and the difficulties that they are experiencing through trusting in Jesus. Uh, Ripken has been a missionary on the mission field for more than 30 years. He's traveled to more than 70 countries. And um, about 12 years before this book was written, he really said, I want to interview uh, people, indigenous people from other nations, persecuted nations, who have experienced difficulties and trial, and, and try to understand just what, what Christianity is about, what, it, what trial is, what, what persecution is. And it's a, really a, a book, a compilation of, of all that he, he learned with that. Because um, much of, of, of our understanding of Christianity is different than that of the world. It, it's different when you come to Christ from a from Muslim background or a Buddhist background or a Hindu background. I mean, just, just think about this. Just in our land, in America, if uh, a young person becomes a Christian, often that is a... A time of rejoicing. It's what our parents have prayed for, for years and years. And when older Americans come to Christ, um, oftentimes people in our society see this a good thing because it's often been a crisis, some drug problem or alcohol problem or financial struggle or marriage problems. And coming to Christ helps solve some of those problems, gets them off of drugs, perhaps restores their marriage, brings some sanity back into their life. And, and often when an older person comes to Christ, it's, oh, good for you. That's because we're in a predominant Christian culture. But when people come to Christ from Hindu cultures or Muslim cultures or from Buddhist cultures, it's different. Persecution will often come because uh, families aren't for that. Families are strongly against that, to, to see people forsake the religion of their ancestors. Persecution comes from society because we're a Muslim society. Well, you can't be a Christian, right? You're a Hindu society. And, and, the, and the persecution comes strong. And uh, it, it's believing in Jesus that often brings about rejection. Uh, I mean, Christianity is often a path to, to better life in some cultures, but not in other cultures. Because receiving Christ, it, it seems to be more of a, a criticism. of, of I, I grew up in this Hindu culture, this Buddhist culture, but it's not good enough for me. I need to get this other religion. And uh, especially comes, as Ripken says in the moment of, of baptism. Listen to what he says about baptism. He says, Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims will all directly associate baptism with salvation. And the act of baptism itself will bear witness to faith in Jesus. In Islam in particular, baptism is seen as the point of no return. A person being baptized is in effect saying, I will die for my faith. Persecution soars at baptism, and those who baptize, those baptized need to know clearly the cost of their decision to follow Jesus, especially through baptism. It's sort of like when, when people are baptized, it's like they are, are sticking their they're sticking the ground and they are saying, Yes, I'm following Jesus, and, and I he is he is the one I'm pursuing after. And that just 
basically that says, I'm a target now. And uh, oftentimes things are very difficult. Um, I know a few people in America who, when they are baptized, then come under greater persecution than ever before. I mentioned last week how we knew uh, a Jewish woman uh, in a college ministry we were involved with uh, in DeKalb before we came up here uh, to, to Rockford to plant this church, who basically was disowned by their family when she was baptized. Um, but later that, that reconciled, and that was all okay. But basically just no communication with mom and dad, not nearly the extent of persecution in, in foreign lands. And in foreign lands, especially when there are missionary, Western missionaries involved, it becomes particularly dicey because uh, these new converts, right, those missionaries see these new converts rejected by their communities. They want to help, oftentimes financially. But in helping them, it, it causes some, some difficulty, even brings greater persecution. Because not only have they forsaken their, their own <coughs> people, but now they've come to rely upon these missionaries. They see it as a financial gain. A financial hardship. And so Ripken tells, and, and he ministered among Somalis mostly, and in Somalia as a country, 99.9% .9 Muslim. In 1991, there were about 150 believers in that country. And, and many of these people were martyred as a result of their faith soon after that. By 1998, seven years later, he said he knew only of four people of the indigenous people of Somalis who were still alive in Somalia. Many of them were killed. And, and, and most of the deaths happened as a result of some sort of connection with the Western missionaries. Uh, some were murdered because they were employed in Christian relief organizations headquartered in the West. Others were killed because they worshipped regularly and they, they spent much time with the Western missionaries rather than their home country. It's almost like it's not good enough and it's evoked hostility and they were murdered as a result of that. And, and my whole point in telling you that is this, is that conversion can be costly. Conversion can be costly, especially in foreign lands when Christianity is by far the minority. And, and we're going to see that in our text this morning. This is our, our main lesson today. Acts chapter 9. You can open there in your Bibles. We're going to look at verses 19 through 31. We're going to see the Apostle Paul, who's called Saul. We're going to see him come upon some inherent difficulties <clears throat> in coming to faith in Christ. Uh, Paul paid quite the cost to follow Christ. He was rejected by the Jews who tried to kill him. And he was distrusted by the Christians who had difficulty believing really that he was a, a changed man. So Paul was caught in the middle. On the one hand, hated by the Jews who was countrymen and, and then seeking to join these, these Christians who were, who were really apprehensive about him, right? Suspecting him to be a fraud. But such is the cost of conversion. Now, none of this should have caught Saul by surprise. Before his baptism, Jesus said to him through Ananias, you can look there at Acts chapter 9 to verse 16. He was blinded, Ananias came, and this was Ananias' message to Saul before he was baptized. He said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Saul suffered greatly for the name of Christ. Uh, we're we're going to see that as we work our way through Acts. In Acts chapter 14, we're going to see him stoned in Lystra and left for dead. In chapter 16, we're going to see him beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. In chapter 19, we're going to see him being at the, at the center place of a public riot in Ephesus and blamed then. Uh, we're going to see him arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem. We're going to see him shipwrecked in the Mediterranean. And finally, we're going to see him held in custody in Rome. And his suffering all began 
really the moment he was baptized and identified himself as a follower of Christ. My message this morning is entitled, The Cost of Conversion. I want to read our text, Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 31. And we see here in verse 18, if we back up just a little bit, and immediately, that is immediately after Ananias came and laid his hands upon him, he regained his sight. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he arose and was baptized. Here it is, verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has not he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus... He had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. My first point this morning is this, persecution in Damascus. The, the sort of cost of conversion is uh, persecution that came. Saul initially right, went to Damascus on this quest to persecute Christians in that city. He came with letters from the high priest that gave him authority to uh, arrest and bind any Christian in that city. And he had planned to bring them back to Jerusalem where they would be imprisoned and they'd be tried as heretics, possibly beaten, possibly stoned to death. But all this changed on the road that we looked at last week, right? Shortly before arriving at the city, right? This great light shone around him and he was blinded. And then he heard this voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you? And he said, he's Lord. And uh, he says, go into Damascus, and you'll be told what to do there. And then a man named Ananias came and, and touched him. And after he waited for, it was three days and three nights. He didn't eat or drink, but he just prayed. And then Ananias laid his hands on him. He granted him sight. And that's where we pick up the story, really, in, in verse 18, where immediately, right, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, rose, was baptized, took food, and was strengthened. Now, I, I would have loved to have heard Saul's baptism testimony. Would you love to hear that? Like, like here was Saul, right, just raging against the church, blinded, and then he's in uh, Damascus waiting three days, just pondering it over, and then Ananias comes, and immediately then he's baptized. So he had, he's had very little time even to process what, what happened to him. 
And uh, his baptism testimony, I, I would suspect, right, just, just to give a testimony, what, what, what baptism is, right, when they, they came, John the Baptist, they came confessing their sins, right, telling of their life and, and seeking then to wash in the water in a, in a fresh new way. And that's what Saul would have done. And his testimony he would have told and spoken of why it is that he was, was following Christ in the manner of obedience in, the gospel, in, in baptism. And listen, I think it would be no different than Acts 22. We're going to hear Paul's testimony several times. We hear it in Acts 22. We're going to hear it also in Acts 26. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 22. It will ring a bell. It will be familiar. Probably something like this that he told in the waters of baptism. He said to the crowds, the Jewish crowds were hostile to him. Acts 22. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. But brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and, and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so that's what Paul did. He says, I've risen and, and I'm calling on his name. And I hear now I'm being baptized in obedience to the Lord. And that's immediately what, what Paul did. He, that testimony then he was baptized and and the followers of christ in damascus saw him be baptized and they received him we see this in verse 19 after he strengthened was strengthened with food and right after his lunch then he went for some days he was with the disciples at damascus and, and i can only imagine the fellowship that saul had with those at damascus can you not he, he's he's there and they see him and and i'm sure that you know that they were asking Saul, like, can you tell us that story again? Can, can you go over that again? And, and, and Saul would just say things like, you know what, guys? I was not seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking me. I mean, it's very clear. I was going to destroy the church, and Jesus came to me protecting the church. And then he talked about the light. Man, that light was so bright. I mean, it just blinded. It was like I was looking into the sun, and my eyes, I just could not see anything. Yes, it was an audible voice I heard. I heard Jesus speaking to me, saying, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, it, it was Jesus. And, and in a moment, he was showing me the error of my ways. I was so zealous for God. But, but yet my zealousness was wrong. I was in error. 
And you know what, guys? I regret my former actions. I am so sorry for all that, I, that I've done. They were wrong, and yes, they were sinful. And, and he says, I'm thankful for Jesus and his forgiveness of sins, that he would forgive me of anybody, the one who persecuted the church. And, uh, and Paul, I'm sure, pledged these people. I, I'm looking forward now to serving Christ. I don't know where it's going to take me. I just know he says I'm going to be before Jews and, and Gentiles, Jesus told me, and before kings, and I'm going to suffer a lot. I don't know what's ahead of me, but I'm willing to take it on. And surely those in Damascus marveled that, that Saul the persecutor was now Saul their friend and fellow laborer in the gospel. And surely they rejoiced in the working of God who saved such a one from being an enemy of the church to being a supporter of the church. And we don't know how long he was there in Damascus. It just says for some days. That's a few days. That's maybe three days. That's maybe a week, maybe ten days. We, we don't know exactly how long that is. But we do know what he was doing. He was preaching in the synagogue. In fact, it, it seemed as if he began immediately preaching. If, if you look at uh, verse 20, it says this. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So, so it's almost as if he was, he was baptized and he went right almost from, from baptized to his lunch where he, he got strengthened and refreshed and then went right to the synagogue and started his preaching ministry. Now, it's not particularly advisable in the Christian church to, to place those in the pulpit immediately after they've been saved. Many have been ruined by that practice. As, as Paul speaks about, let them not be new converts lest they become conceited. That's why Paul says to Timothy, do not lay hands on anyone in a ministerial way too quickly and thus bear the sins of many. But this was different with Saul. This call, Saul had spoken in the synagogue often. He probably knew people in Damascus having been there before. And this wasn't a Christian congregation and, and, and a Christian leader. He was speaking in the synagogue where he had much credibility as a prominent rabbi from Jerusalem. And it's a common custom with the synagogues back then that when a, a visiting rabbi would come into a uh, a synagogue that he would be given an opportunity to speak. We'll see this in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15 when Paul is on his first missionary journey with Barnabas and they're up at city in Antioch and, and after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas saying, if any of you have a word of exhortation, speak it. And Paul was ready. And so he, he stood up and he spoke the gospel to those in city in Antioch. And I'm sure something like that took place in Damascus. The, the, the law was read and the and the prophets were read. Then the leaders of the synagogue, noticing Saul, probably knowing of him, this prominent rabbi, said, would you have anything to say? And Saul was ready to speak. The day of his baptism, probably. And, and continued on the next several days. And in fact, I've, I've heard it this. It says it this way. Every Christian ought to be ready for three things in his life. Ought to be ready to pray, to preach, and to die. You ought to be re are you ready for those three things? Paul was. Are, are you ready to pray? Maybe even today there'll be someone who has a burden on their life. And it just says, you know, to say to you, could you just pray for me? Are you able to place your hand on their shoulder and just pray for them? Are you able to do that? You need to be. Are you able to preach? Are you ready to preach? There may be some circumstance where you, you find yourself in a, with a, a friend who's unbelieving. You're, you're ready to talk to them about Jesus. You might find yourself in a store or in a place publicly where you have an opportunity for the gospel. Are you ready to preach? Maybe that's not standing in front of lots of people, but maybe that is just speaking something quickly, being a witness for Jesus, as the book of Acts is calling us to. 
And are you ready to die? Are you ready to take your final breath? Are you ready to walk out of uh, this church and, and fall down dead? Um, in, in recent days, maybe some of you read the, the blog Tim Challey. Um, his son Nick died, I think it was maybe seven months ago, maybe eight months ago, I'm not exactly sure. He was a young, healthy, 20-year-old, engaged, ready to be married. He was going to be married, I think, like, like last week, last Saturday is what I think. He was ready to get married. And he was a, a young man at Boyce College, and he just died. He was with his friends, and he just died. And uh, just over the past, whatever, months and weeks and uh, months since that's been, it's been interesting to see Tim Challey just deal with the death of his son. And his son was ready to die. That's a 20-year-old, engaged, thinking about all his life ahead. He was ready to die. Um, you know, Tim just spoke about his friends were, were tremendous. Uh, he, he, had, he had no health issues there at all, but he'd walked a life of integrity. He was ready to die and be with his Savior. Are you ready to die? You need to be ready to pray, to preach, and to die. And the great Rabbi Saul certainly taught many in Israel, was certainly ready to speak. And, and perhaps Saul spoke what they were not expecting to hear. Maybe they didn't even hear about his baptism initially that first Sabbath morning when he got there, or that first day he got there. Maybe they're expecting a message from the prophets or the law about how a good Jew should live. But that's not what they heard. Look at verse 20, what his content of his message was. Here's the title of his message this morning was, He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that's not some obscure theological point. This is the issue with Jesus. Is he the Son of God or is he not the Son of God? Is Jesus from heaven the Messiah who's come to deliver his people? Or is he simply some man who, who was deluded and gained some sort of following? And his followers are haunting us to this day. And Paul was saying that Jesus was no deluded man. Indeed, he was the Son of God. He was the Savior of the people of Israel. And now, just you need to know that holding and preaching such views in the synagogues back then was not a particularly safe Adventure. In fact, it was dangerous. It could get you killed. You know that? In fact, that very theological point got Jesus put on a cross. You remember that, that night in which Jesus was betrayed? When, when the high priest asked Jesus after that long night of trial, the high priest said to him, Matthew 26, 63, getting frustrated with him, and just said, I adjure you by the name of the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us, please. Jesus said, you said so. <laughs> and, and at that point, the high priest tore his robe. And he said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And he asked all the Sanhedrin who was, who was gathered there. And they all said, he deserves death for saying that he was the son of God. And from that moment on, the abuse of Jesus began. You read Matthew 26, right, beginning in verse 67, 68, 69. Now they began to spit in his face, and they began to slap him. They began to strike him with rods and mock him, saying, Prophesy it to us, you Christ, who it is that struck you. And then it took him out to beating more, and then they took him out to Pilate and back and forth, and eventually he died. Eventually, his suffering only ended when he breathed his last. And so for Saul to enter into a Jewish synagogue in Damascus and to say such things like Jesus is the Son of God was not safe. But that's what, what Saul did. 
he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, I would suspect Saul in his preaching related some of his experiences of what he had seen on the road, how he'd been blinded by the light, how he'd heard the voice of the Lord, how his sight had been restored, and how his views had changed. He no longer saw Jesus as this leader of this heretical sect, this, this false cult. But now he believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came to save Israel from their sins. And, and, and as Paul was preaching these things, you can look at verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. And they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Those are two questions there in verse 21. And, and uh, let me just ask you, what's the answer to those questions? Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who call upon his name? The answer to that is, yes, it's the guy. And, and second question, and has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? And the answer is, yes, he's the guy. Yes, he's the thing that he was planning to do that. He was ravaging the church in Jerusalem. Yes, he was coming to Damascus with the intent to enter house after house and drag off men and women, bring them to Jerusalem, bound as heretics. Yes, but this was Saul. This no longer is Saul. Because Saul was changed. And that's what God does in conversion, is he changes people. He transforms them. And Paul, Saul, was, was transformed. Yes, he was the one who did all those terrible things. <clears throat> but the Lord changed him. Now, he, the one preaching in, in the Damascus synagogue, was a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. The old Saul had passed away. And behold, the new Saul had come. Or to use Paul's own words, which Darren read for us this morning. Galatians 1.23, they said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And that's exactly what it is. He, he, he was once trying to destroy those in Damascus, and now he's preaching the faith. It's the reality of conversion. It changes us. It transforms us. Where, where once we might have a worldly message, but now we have the message of Jesus. Where once we might live in a worldly way, but now we're seeking to pursue after Jesus. We're living in a godly way. There's a transformation, a change that takes place. Have you been converted? Has there been a change in your life? Can, can you look back and say, once was this, but God has changed me, and now I'm this. Do you have a testimony to tell? At a moment's notice, can you stand and tell that testimony? This is what Paul did immediately after his conversion, and it's what he continued to do in Damascus. Look at verse 22. It says, But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And the idea here is that he was continually doing this. Is it continually confounding these Jews? Uh, like, like day after day after day. And, and I would suspect that that Saul, right, was beginning to see the scriptures in a new light. He knew the scriptures really well, but he didn't know Jesus, the key that unlocked the scriptures. And, and never before did he see that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of so many Old Testament scriptures. And so I picture Paul, day after day, coming into the synagogues with Old Testament in hand, looking back and, and just talking to them, dialoguing with them, preaching to them, teaching them about all that he saw about Jesus in the Old Testament. And he was excited about that, I am sure. I, I remember one time being at a, a deathbed of a, of a woman. We were there in the nursing home, and I, I met up with an old friend. I hadn't seen him for a while. 
And uh, all he could do was, he was just discovering Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, as the, the woman was there, and the songs were being said, and uh, songs were being sung, and, and there was uh, just talk, and some, he was, he was kind of there with me, just always excited about, oh, look at this passage, or look at this passage, or look at this passage. Just so much pointing to Jesus from the Old Testament. And I think that's what Saul was, was probably trying to do, is, is, is bringing to the synagogue every day what he'd read that night. Maybe he was reading in Deuteronomy 18 about this prophet that, that uh, Moses had promised would rise up after him, saying, oh, Jesus is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, or, or reading Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant and saying, that's Jesus, that's exactly what happened to him. Or maybe reading Psalm 22, what David prophesied of the suffering of the Messiah and saying that was him. Or, or reading 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic promise and realizing that Jesus was of the line of De David and he can sit on the throne because he's the Messiah forever. Or, or Psalm 110 that says, my, the, the Lord said to my Lord, oh, he, this is greater than David, though he is David's son. And understanding how that speaks about the Messiah. Or Micah chapter 5 of the humble birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem, exactly what the scripture says. Or Zechariah 9, which speaks about the humble entry of, of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's exactly what was there. Or, or Zechariah 12, which speaks about the piercing of Jesus. A and he's reading this at night and then coming to the synagogue by day and just expounding more and more. Or reading Psalm 118 about the rejected cornerstone. That, that's Jesus. He even said that. The stone which was rejected to become the chief cornerstone. Or, or going back into Genesis and seeing Genesis 3.15 about the, the serpent and the seed of the serpent crushing the head and the heel. And just saying, wow, there's the first gospel that's talking about Jesus. The seed of God, the seed of the woman. Or, or, or reading in Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham that even then would spread that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But yes, Jesus was from the seed of Abraham and all the nations have been blessed through him. Like, I, I, I just picture... This whole experience of him, day by day, speaking of these new things he's seeing in the Old Testament. As he sees in the Old Testament in a new light, in a new paradigm. And the Jews were confounded by his wisdom. We see that in verse 22. But it's interesting here, right? With all of his intellect and with all of his insight and, and all of his new creature mind, he was unable to persuade the Jews. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Isn't that comforting to you? To know that Paul, with all his persuasion, with all his learning, with all of his insight, was unable to persuade the Jews. That means that us, right? Paul's intellect is far beyond any of ours. You don't, you don't persuade people into the kingdom through great intellect. They are persuaded when God transforms a heart. You can talk to your friends and you can talk to your family till you're blue in the face, but all the intellect in the world won't persuade them. They'll only be persuaded when God opens the heart, as he did right here with Paul on the road to Damascus. Unless the Lord then breaks the heart of stone, those you know who are hardened, who you're talking to about Christ, they're hardened to the gospel. And so what does that, what does that call you to do? I mean, think about it, right? You're talking to someone whose heart is hard. You're trying all that you can to explain Jesus to them, but their heart is hard. How are you going to transform that heart? You're not. You're going to pray, right? And, and the only way you pray for someone's salvation is believing that God is the author of salvation. He's going to come and pierce and change that heart, soften that heart, open the eyes so they see the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's the only way it's going to happen. We need to pray for the salvation of those for whom you are talking and being a witness. 
And at some point, here in verse 23, we, we see their politeness or the Jews, their inquisitiveness or their endurance. We see it turned into hostility. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. At some point, the Jews had enough of this rabbi from Jerusalem. This rabbi turned messianic zealot. They're ready to murder Saul. Such is the cost of conversion. Compels us to speak what we've seen and heard. <clears throat> it compels us <clears throat> to tell others of a change in our life. And it just begs persecution to come. Now the life of Saul, it meant his life was in danger. People wanted to kill him. For us, it's different. <clears throat> Most people who are Christians, even the boldest of Christians in our culture, can be super bold and few really want to kill them. For us, it may mean other things. It may mean damaged relationships. It may mean loss of business opportunities. It may mean the scorn of friends. It may mean the ridicule of family. But that's the cost of following Jesus. That, that's the cost of being converted to Christ, right? When you speak of the ways that God has, has changed you and you tell others what Jesus has done for your soul, people don't like it. Because you know what? People like the old self rather than the new self. People like the old Steve rather than the new Steve, right? People like the old Ted or the old Jim or the old Bob or the old Mary rather than the new one, right? Because the old one was fun. The old one went out drinking with the buddies. And the old one used to get high with the buddies. And, and the old one, right, liked to tell dirty jokes. And, and the old one liked to hang out till the wee hours of, of the morning. The old one liked to hang out with the boys rather than hang out with the wife. But the new one doesn't hang out with the boys anymore. And the new one doesn't go out drinking or drugs in the old way. Because there's been a change, there's been a transformation. And the old people who like those things don't like the new person who's the goody-two-shoes now. And there's going to be some scorn and some differences because people don't like the change. They didn't like the change in Saul. They plotted to murder him. But verse 24, we see their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching <coughs> the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. You can only envision what it might have looked like, and maybe it looked like that on, on the overhead. What an escape. Now, at this point, once Paul knew um, that they were trying to kill him, Paul wasn't going outside. He was, he was holed up in a, in a house someplace because he knew his life was in danger. And people around him or knew him were smuggling him and eventually, in the cover of darkness, put him in this basket into someone's house who was over near the wall, lowered him down into safety. Nobody saw Saul leave the city. He went off, escaped it, which, by the way, it's okay to flee persecution. When your life is at stake, it's okay to do what Saul did. It's okay to do what Jesus did. There were times when the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. After his first sermon in Nazareth, when he came back to his hometown, he preached, and some were praising him. Others, they wanted to get him. They wanted to stone him, just like they stoned Stephen. But it says that he just disappeared from their midst. Luke chapter 4, verse 30. Or in John chapter 8, verse 59, they were trying to kill him because he was making himself equal with God, calling God his father, making himself equal there. And they tried to kill him, and Jesus had just kind of left them into the crowds, and they couldn't find him. Jesus escaped persecution. It wasn't until the hour of his death that had been foreordained from the foundation of the world when he said, okay, I'm not fleeing this time. I'm going to go through this. Conversion comes with a cost. It comes with a cost of persecution. 
And he can flee that persecution at times. At times, you've got to just face it straightforward. So just pray for wisdom for how God, God will do that. Well, it's my second point now. And we saw him in Damascus, persecution in Damascus, and now we see Saul persecution in Jerusalem. Verses 26 to 31. If you look there, verse 26 says this, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him because they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, here he's persecution kind of coming from the other side. People didn't believe him. Maybe it's not killing persecution, but it is. It's just like, I'm one of you now. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not quite so sure you are. It's totally understandable, especially for the believers in Jerusalem. Paul was a, a well-known Pharisee in Jerusalem. From best we can tell, he was probably there in person at the trial of Jesus. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, giving his hearty approval. He was ravaging the church. He was going door to door. The Christians knew about this man. When they saw this man on the street, they, they ducked and turned away and went the other way. They knew about him. Followers of Christ need, knew to avoid him lest they go to prison, lest they be beaten, lest they be stoned like Stephen was. So it's understandable the early disciples didn't believe that Paul had joined their ranks. And now oh, I think he's a rat. He's, he's come into our, our, our place and he's, he's going to try to rat us out. Maybe that's who, who it was. Right? But it took some time to convince them. It wasn't an easy task. But it was a task that Barnabas took up. We can see Barnabas step up in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, to these apostles, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And now at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And, and there's Barnabas basically telling the apostles the testimony of, Je of Paul. That, that he was on the road and he saw this light and he spoke with Jesus. And now he's gone he's preached to Jesus in the, the synagogues. And Barnabas believed that Saul's conversion was, was genuine. And, and, and this is so consistent with what we know of Barnabas. He was well known among the apostles as a man of encouragement. In fact, his name wasn't Barnabas. His given name was, was Joseph. But they called him Barnabas because that means son of encouragement. He was such an encourager. He just believed in people and he sought to help them. Uh, he, he believed in Acts 15. He believed in Mark. When other people didn't believe in Mark, giving people second chances and sort of lifting them up. And that's what, what Barnabas was. And so it's no accident that Barnabas was a guy who, uh, who commended Saul's character, verified it before the apostles in Jerusalem. And, and Barnabas had some clout with those in Jerusalem. He was a man of generosity. In Acts 4, right, we saw him selling a field that he owned and giving the money to the needs of the people. I mean, he was, he was a, a generous man who was fully in um, with the church, and that gave him credibility to speak in the lives of the apostles. So you might even say this, that Barnabas was a peacemaker, and Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And Barnabas here is so blessed. The actions of, of Barnabas allowed Saul really to move about in Jerusalem. Apart from Barnabas, it would have been much more difficult. But talking with the apostles, we read in verse 28, and so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And in and out, maybe in the synagogues, maybe in the church settings. So he just kind of, he seemed to have some free reign there in Jerusalem, preaching forth his message. On the one hand, if, if Acts would have stopped there, we said, wow, it's really good for Paul. Look at the freedom that he has now. But all was not so well. He faced his usual trials. Look at verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. These would be your, your Greek-speaking Jews. 
Right? The, the, the Jews who, who whatever, could, could speak Greek and as opposed to the Jewish Jews. So he's speaking to the Jews of Jews, the, the um, whatever, the Hebrew Jews. He's speaking with the Hellenistic Jews. He's speaking to all of them. But particularly here is the Hellenists who did not like what he was saying. And they were seeking to kill him. This is like deja vu from Damascus. Uh, on his road to Damascus, right, Jesus told him, right, you're going to suffer. And here he is, he's suffering. He said, well, Damascus is in Jerusalem, and this becomes basically the, the pattern of his life. We'll see that in chapters 13 and 14. He goes on his missionary journey. It's like he goes to a place. We'll see that in chapter 17 as well. He, he, he goes to a place, and he speaks to them. He gets some converts, but, but then Jews from this other city come, and they stir up, and he gets kicked out, and then he comes here, and he's preaching about Jesus, and people come from this city, and, and he's just kind of going on and on. He's just always persecuted and always needing to flee for his life. And so again, Paul had to make, Saul had to make another escape, verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Troas. It almost seemed here it's against his will. It seemed as if the brothers knew and discerned more about his danger than he himself realized. Totally makes sense, doesn't it? That here's Saul preaching. He's not hearing all the scuttlebutt that's kind of going around and all the plans and all the people that say, Paul, you're really in danger. I'm, I'm, I think I'm okay. I'm walking around here. No, Paul, you're in danger. And they took him down to Caesarea by the coast, and then they brought him up to Tarsus, which was his hometown way up in, in the north. Never see it's all the cost of, of discipleship, the cost of conversion. Now, before we look at verse 31, I just want to speak a little bit about chronology in the book of Acts. Because Luke, the author of Acts, makes it here look like our passage, right, that Saul was converted remained in Damascus for many days, and then he went straight to Jerusalem right after Damascus. But if you read Galatians 1, which, which um, Darren read for us this morning, Paul fills in a bit more details about what's happening. In Galatians 1, he, he speaks about his conversion on the road to Damascus, but he didn't stay in Damascus. He's only in Damascus a little bit. Then he spent a good deal of time in, in Arabia, which was near Damascus, but he was away. And then it was when he came back then that they didn't tolerate him, and he, he escaped, and he left. After many days, probably what that verse 23 is talking about, he was in Arabia, and then many days later, he passed. And then after Damascus, Paul says it was three years till he went down to Jerusalem. So, and he was there even only for 15 days before he left again. So in 15 days, he got into trouble before he left. But, but Acts, interesting, Luke and Acts just leaves out those details. It's not that he's being deceitful at all. It's just Luke is thinking about the story of the Christian church. You need to realize that Saul, when he was converted, came into some intense difficulties and struggles right off the bat. He was in Damascus, and even though he's away for a little bit, then he came to Jerusalem, he was in trouble. And that's the point of our text, and that's what we're trying to see. Not what Paul didn't, what Luke didn't include, but what Luke did include, and he included this aspect about how conversion is costly. The title of my message this morning is, in Paul's life, it means that he needed to flee just right away, having been converted to Christ. And then comes the contrast of verse 31. And this, in context, is, context is why it brings such joy. He says, so, like once Paul got out there, and probably as a result of all the ministry of, of Paul, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This here is one of those uh, progress reports I spoke to you about a couple of months ago, just in terms of different ways. You can slice up the book of Acts. You can slice it up like Acts 1-8, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1 through 7, 
your witnesses in Judea and Samaria, Acts chapter 8 through 12. We're kind of right in the midst of that. And then to the ends of the earth, 13 and following. Or you can look at these progress reports. And, and here's one of those progress reports. But the last one was in chapter 6 and verse 7, um, where it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. And here in verse 31 of chapter 9, we see the church just disdaining in peace and prosperity and well-being. And so even though the, the, the cost of conversion is high, and even though it put Paul on the run, yet still the church here was enjoying peace and being built up. And that's really what we rejoice in today, is that the, the church was peaceful. It's what we, we long for. We long for a peaceful church where, where interactions among us are well and healthy and strong. And when we are, are built up, we walk in the fear of the Lord. And we walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we see the church multiply. That's when, that's when all is well. And it really, though, all, all comes down to realizing what God does with each of us to convert us and change us. And it will cost us something. It will cost you something even to be a a participating member of the church. It'll cost you to do some things maybe you don't want to do so as to help build up the church in peace and unity. And one of the things that we do at, at Rock Valley Bible Church every four to six weeks or so is we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I just want to make a few comments about that. I'm going to call up the worship team now and we will, we will just sing a song and then we'll come up, we'll eat the bread and we'll drink of the cup and then we'll sing another song before we are, are dismissed. But I want you just to Think back and reflect upon what Jesus, what Paul was preaching. These people preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. That he indeed was the Messiah come from heaven. That he was, as it says in uh, verse 22, that Jesus was the Christ. The fulfillment of all of these Old Testament scriptures that, uh, that I talked about. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, 2 Samuel 7. Micah 5, Zechariah 9, Psalm 110, Psalm 118, just to, just to name a few of these that speak and prophesy of the Christ who's going to come and suffer in this life. And he's going to go to heaven and sit and wait someday to come back to judge, to rule and reign and how we need to be right with him. And, and the Lord's Supper here this morning is for all who've trusted in Jesus. It's an opportunity for us just to reflect and think again about the the crucifixion of Christ. And do what Jesus told us to do. We eat the bread and drink the cup just to remember Jesus. And so that's what we're seeking to do today. So if you are, are one who is trusting in Christ, and you confess sins to others, you confess sin to the Lord, you're walking right with Him, and it's time to celebrate the supper. So why don't the, the music team want to come up and uh, we'll, we'll sing our song uh, together, and then I'll, I'll come and lead us in actually eating and, and drinking of the cup and the bread.